everyone, you're listening to IASA's Additional Coverage Podcast, episode number 17. I'm your host, Tim Hicks, and joining me for today's additional coverage, I'm pleased to welcome Carly Canwisher. Hi, Tim. It's great to be on your podcast. Carly is a business advisory services manager with Johnson Lambert, a multi-office, niche-focused firm that provides audit, tax, and consulting services to insurance entities, as well as nonprofits and employee benefit plans. As a part of the BAS team, Carly is responsible for providing a full range of IT advisory consulting and auditing services. What a big job. Well, today we're going to talk about the imminent updates to the New York Department of Financial Services cybersecurity rules. But first, I would like to recognize the support that we receive from IASA's member companies and volunteers. IASA is the voice of the insurance industry. If your company is not already a member, I encourage you to consider all of the benefits that come with membership in IASA. You can find out more at IASA.org. Well, Carly, thanks for joining us. You're currently on the speaking circuit to talk about these updates to the cybersecurity rules in the state of New York. So I was wondering, can you briefly talk about what's behind these changes and why New York is making them right now? Sure, I'd love to. Um, So I guess why are these changes coming down the pipeline now? And simply, there's been a lot of updates since the law first became effective in 2017. Cyber criminals have gotten a lot smarter, and cybercrime is more rampant than ever. So it's critical that regulations keep up to pace with the new threats and technologies. And New York has always been a leader in cybersecurity. They were the first state back in 2017 to propose legislation that became effective in 2018 for financial services with Part 500. And that Part 500 has been the yardstick for cyber regulation across the country. And this was evidenced by like the NAIC model law. And the model law was created just a year after Part 500 went into effect. And it's a proposed set of guidelines that state can, states can adopt. And while each state kind of takes the model law and makes it their own, They are all based off of New York, with New York being the most stringent. And so there's been 21 states that have adopted it since it was created in 2018. And it's likely that any updates made in New York are going to kind of ripple throughout the rest of the United States as New York is leader for cybersecurity. You know, I have seen that in statutory accounting and reporting roles too. What happens in New York then trickles down to the, the rest of the U.S. They're always kind of the, the, the leader in the, uh, in the changes that come about. So I was wondering, I mean, there's been so much that's been going on, especially this year with cybersecurity attacks, ransom situations, that sort of thing. I wondered if you could give us a distilled version of what is going to be changing and what the implications would be to our insurance carriers. Of course. And it's interesting you bring up just all the ransomware attacks and everything. Part 500 went into effect really the last year is when we've kind of seen the fines coming into play. And I think, like, the story that's kind of being told is we're seeing, like, why companies are being fined. And then we're seeing those updates reflected in the law. So, for instance, IMED made headlines recently. They had a breach June 24, 2020. They had a bad actor that gained access to a shared email account. 
And they didn't discover the breach till July 1st of 2020. So over the course of the week, someone had unauthorized access to this account. And the account had a bunch of NPIs, such as social security numbers and medical information. And the email account was shared by nine employees. And while Ahmed reported the breach on October 9th, 2020, it was originally settled for about $600,000, and it was updated this past month to $4.5 million. And the reason... Ouch. I know. <laughs> and there's companies that have had their like rights to write insurance taken away because of this law. Like, it's very serious. But I like the IMAT example because it kind of tells the story of like the root causes behind the breach and then like how they're reflected like in the law. Basically, they didn't have any MFA over this account. It had really weak password requirements. They had nine employees sharing it. And they said they attested that they had a risk assessment done, but it was obviously an incomplete risk assessment because the first thing anyone would have seen when looking at their environment is it's pretty high risk for you to be storing MPI on an email account. That's a big no-no, something that would have been caught right off the bat. So all four of those factors are reflected in the updated regulation uh, and much more, honestly. The legislation, first, sort of like breaking it down for people, we have the definition of class A companies. And this is new because before kind of like anyone over the threshold had to just abide by the rules, there weren't really like distinctions for the sizes of companies. And so class A companies are now defined as covered entities with over 2,000 employees or over 1 billion in gross annual revenue for the last three years. And they have to have more stringent requirements than other covered entities. So when you read through the regulation, you'll see Class A called out specifically, and they have to do everything that's laid out plus them. And there's really five main updates for them. They have to have an annual audit of their cybersecurity program by an external party. They have to have more frequent vulnerability assessments than non-Class A entities. And they have to have additional requirements for their privileged accounts. And this is a list of things, but it includes like monitoring their privileged accounts, having a password vaulting solution, and blocking commonly used passwords. And they also have to have additional monitoring controls. So they have to have like endpoint detection that has a centralized logging and security event alerting system. And finally, they have to have an external review of their risk assessment every three years. So I always start out first with, like, this is what class A is. Here are all the extra things they have to do. And then kind of bucketing the rest of the requirements, they kind of fall into governance, asset tracking, access requirements, operational resilience, which is a new section, risk assessment, impact assessments, increased vulnerability and penetration testing, and then updates for notifications of ransomware. And so... Not a, not a short list. <laughs> was it a situation, Carly, where they were self-reporting and then ran into big problems, so now there's these external attestations that are required? Yeah, and it kind of differs. New York specifically, you always would self-attest that, uh, like, the CISO would self-attest, like, that the program is up to snuff. And then now with these updates, they've added that, like, the CEO has to also certify, but you're still self-attesting. But then every three to four years when the regulators come in, they will 
check your cyber program. And so that's actually like part of what I do at Johnson Lambert. We do like the IT controls and the cyber assessment. So that's kind of like where the check comes in and that's where the regulatory fines come out of. So we don't necessarily do a full battery of tests, but we do like check to make sure like, okay, you said you had MFA, you certified you MFA, like show us the MFA. There might be like a gap in like self-certifying and being caught, but... So if a, if a CEO attests, yes, we have all these safeguards in place, you know, all of our NPI and PII is, is safeguarded, he, they certify this, but then it's discovered that they're really not. What kind of fines are they looking at? The fines can be anywhere from like a few thousand dollars to like a few million. And some of these fines do kind of like overlap with other legislation that New York has. But like Robin Hood made he- headlines recently, he made a $30 million fine. I believe it was $30 million. Don't quote me. <laughs> but for these, and it was stuff like MFA. Like, they didn't have MFA in place. And, like, the IMA example we talked about earlier, it wasn't just they didn't have these things. It's that they certified that they did. And then, like, when they looked into it back in 2020, they were like, you didn't have these things. And then when they came back in 2022, they said, you actually also didn't have these things, and you didn't follow up on what we asked you to do in 2020. So not only is it like a one time, like you need to fix this, like they're coming back and checking and adding on to the fines. So it's one thing to not have them. What I, I guess the fines would be less if you didn't have them and you didn't certify that you did, as opposed to if you didn't have them, but you certified that you did, as opposed to certifying that you did and you didn't. And then they came back and said, we told you to fix this and you didn't. Right. Yeah, Exactly. And there is a there's an option, kind of, and it it really does depend on the regulator and kind of like they basically like they do a risk assessment on you and decide like how to leverage the fines. But oh, there is an option to have like incomplete compliance, but you have to have a remediation plan in place when you turn in an incomplete compliance certification. So there is an option, not yeah. to lie. Yes. That's what I would expect is, okay, you don't have it, but we don't have it, but we have a remediation plan in place and here's when we'll have it done. As long as you can attest to that, then I suppose they're not going to hurt you quite as badly, right? Exactly. So when do these changes go into effect? Is this a year in 2022 thing? So we're actually still in like the comments period for these changes and we don't have an exact date on when they're going to go into effect. If we kind of look at like the first amendment as a baseline, we can expect that we know the comments period is going to end on January 8th, 2023. And whenever they're adopted, it's usually about like six months after the comments period ends. So that puts us like June, July of next year. Then within 30 days, the new notification requirements will take effect. And those are like the ransomware requirements. And basically, those requirements are new and they are requiring companies to let the superintendent know when there's deployment of ransomware within a financially significant system or if there's unauthorized access to privileged accounts. And then also to notify the superintendent if there's any sort of extortion payment that is paid and then you have to send an explanation of like why it was necessary. So those would be about 30 days after adoption. Then 180 days after adoption is when a majority of the requirements would take effect. Most notably that includes like the requirement for like the asset inventory. 
And the asset inventory is like a pretty big list on companies, but with some of the more recent attacks with like Log 4J, it's really shown like how important having a detailed inventory for software programs and other versions across an organization are. Previous regulations have called out kind of hardware, but also having that software asset inventory is going to be a lot of work. And then other majority of the requirements, this would include like the tailored risk assessment and having just, there's a lot more requirements in here for governance as well, such as like board expertise, having a CEO certify compliance and additional policies that have to be created. There's a whole list of new policies that companies have to have. And then finally, within like a year, the rest of the technology-focused requirements. So I imagine that kind of being like the endpoint detection stuff, vulnerability, pen tests, but it's all kind of a guessing game. You mentioned several areas. Are, are Is that a fairly complete list of all the areas that are going to be looked at for these rule changes or are there more? They're kind of like grouped or I group them into like areas of updates that we listed like earlier. So we have governance and governance will include like the policy updates and that's I believe 500.02 where they list out all the policies that are required to be in your cybersecurity program. But then also throughout the rest of the regulation, there's policies that are not listed above, but that are required below. And those are things like encryption and uh, asset inventory tracking. And I don't know why they don't list them in 500.02 and they just kind of sprinkle them for everyone to find. But there's a lot of policy updates and then board reporting, uh, CEO certification. Basically, with all the governance updates, they are requiring uh, senior leadership to understand and attest to cyber risks. And I personally think this is kind of a reflection of like the revolving doors CISO. It's pretty common after we see these headlines that we've been talking about that the next headline is like CISO fired. Right. And right. Get yeah, somebody in here who has a better idea of what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> and that's always a story that's told, but in reality, these companies are not hiring incompetent individuals. They are hiring very seasoned experts in their field, but they're not giving them leadership, independence, or a budget to implement their ideas. And then they're kind of like using them as the fall guy when we have these events. So this is kind of requiring management to attest to, I understand what these cyber risks are, and like I'm either accepting the risk or here's the plan to move forward with it. And it's making it harder when you make the CEO certify compliance and you have these required board reportings to say, well, we didn't know and that was like his job. So I think that's what's kind of driving like the governance changes. Some of the more like detailed technology changes, like the asset tracking, we've talked about like the log4j vulnerabilities and like their solar winds. And really, people just not understanding, like, what's in their environment. And then for the asset requirements, or sorry, access requirements, when we talked about, like, the IMED example, really, it's uh, the privilege that counts is kind of at the root of that attack. And they go so far as to now define what a privileged account is. And it's a pretty broad definition. It's really anyone with elevated privileges that could materially affects the organization. So that's like pretty open for interpretation. 
and it requires that those privileged accounts have MFA, and it requires MFA to even get into the network. And the bottom line is really like the additional security requirements highlight the breach trends and their possible solutions to this problem. Gotcha. And operational resilience. This is like the new section that was added, and it it, it this used to be called like the incident response plan, and like. I think that like the changing of this title is a broader understanding of risk response, and it kind of splits up all of the requirements into three sections of like risk identification and assessment, then risk mitigation, and then ongoing monitoring. Whereas an incident response plan was kind of like here's the plan in case of a problem. This one is more of a holistic view on risk response, and it has a ton of details that are required for the business continuity and disaster recovery plan, there's really just like a whole list in the regulation of like things that are required to be in these plans. And whenever these regulations are specific, like you want to pay attention because I felt that the previous regulation was pretty big in certain spots. Like as a regulator, when I would come in and look at like the cybersecurity requirements, a lot of it could be just like, show me your thought process. Like, why did you think this was like an appropriate instant response plan? Now it's more of a checklist of like, do you have communication plans? Do you have backup facilities? Like much more specific and listed out. And then it also requires like not just to have these really updated detailed plans, but it requires you to be like training your employees and periodically having like these tabletop assessments. And it calls out bringing in senior officers into these plans and having them also available to all employees, which might seem like a silly thing, but before we went and asked like, well, where is your incident response plan? They'd be like, oh, it's like on our network drive. And it's like, okay, so if you had a cyber ransom attack of some sort and your network, you're not able to get to it, how would you get to the plan? So it just calls out that the plans be available to everyone and that they also be like in an offsite location. It's just much more specific. Right. Not just, oh, yeah, we have a CSER plan. We just, you know. <laughs> exactly. And but it, you got to be able to access it in the, in the case of an event. Yeah. It's just more, much more holistic. It's not just like, okay, do you have this document? Great. It's like, do you have the document? Do you, is it a living, breathing document? Are people using it? Are people able to, like, be checking in on it? Where would it? And then asking, like, those, are they trained on yeah, it? Yeah. And it's asking those, like, post-mortem questions of like, okay, it's so like the worst has happened. Could you do all of these things? And you can see it too. Like in the update, it's just like a chunk of red new text where there was kind of like three lines before about like an instant response plan. So aside from following the exposure draft and, and commenting on that, what do you think uh, our listening audience, our insurance carriers should be doing to help get themselves ready for this change? I would recommend uh, first just kind of reading the legis or the regulation in its entirety and really understanding what is being asked of you. And there are plenty of professionals you can bring in to help do this. The first step that I would advise you to do is to have a gap analysis to assess your current cybersecurity program and understand like where you might need to be adding budget or staffing uh, or creating policies. And then once you've started closing those gaps through like a roadmap to compliance, I would recommend that you then have like a pre-assessment done. And typically a pre-assessment is just you take your cybersecurity program and you have it tested against like the New York legislation. 
uh, by someone who's kind of like pretending to be a regulator. And then you can understand like, all right, even after the gap assessment, even after everything I thought I did, here's still like where I might get dinged or where I might get comments. Gotcha. That sounds like a pretty good plan. Well, uh, Carly, I know what a busy schedule you have right now, and I appreciate you so much for carving out a few moments to speak with me. That's all the time that we have for today's podcast. But if our listeners would like to reach out to you, what would be the best way for them to contact you? LinkedIn, email. Uh, feel free to include like all of my contact information, whatever is easiest for them. Your email address? You give that out? Yeah, I can be reached at uh, C-N-K-A-N-W-I-S-H-E-R at Johnson Lambert, J-O-H-N-S-O-N-L-A-M-B-E-R-T.com. So that's C-Kamisher at JohnsonLambert.com. Fantastic. And if you have any comments about the show or any show suggestions, I would encourage you to reach out to me at Tim.Hicks at FISglobal.com. Well, we'll be taking a break for New Year's, but please join us for our next episode in January when I sit down with David Perry from Arthur J. Gallagher and Company in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, to talk about trends and the catastrophe forecast for 2023 Gulf and Caribbean hurricanes. But until then, I'm Tim Hicks with today's guest, Carly Canwisher. Thanks for having me. (laughs) If you enjoyed this episode, please do us a huge favor and subscribe to the podcast so that you never miss a new episode when it comes out. Be sure you let your colleagues and friends know about the show. We want the entire insurance industry following along with us. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Happy New Year.